Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We're going to take a, a break from 1 Corinthians just for this Sunday. And I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 14 to 16. We've actually taught through this section of Scripture before, um, but I wanted to revisit uh, it in a fresh way this morning because as we approach what I think is um, looking like a third year of COVID-fueled uncertainty coupled with um, kind of a nagging uh, economic uncertainty and a continued political uncertainty with a persistent and nagging disunity even in our normally peaceful spiritual circles, um, as we come to Christmas this season, you might, as I have been tempted to feel at times this year, uh, feel like the foundations are giving way a little bit, um, that the things that were as settled and that were given, that were, um, uh, you know, and, and bankable in the past are not as settled and given and, and sure and bankable as they once looked. And I think... For all of us, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself here, the longer the circumstances of our lives look and feel as if they are uh, shifting, constantly shifting, uh, rather than anchored, the greater our temptation to discouragement and to disillusionment, straight up disillusionment, where the little voice in your head, it starts to openly acknowledge what some or maybe many of the things that, that some or many of the things that we look uh, and look, look to and take for granted, things that are, we think are guaranteed and good and, and trustworthy, we find out they aren't as guaranteed or good <clears throat> and trustworthy as we previously thought them to be. And uh, the constant chatter of our voices in our heads, you know, as we, you know, the kind of that internal monologue, if you will, that still small voice um, it might be, if you let it go on long enough, start to eat away. It might start to eat away at the foundation of our hope if we're not careful. You start to ask questions like, is fighting the good fight of faith worth it? Is glorifying God really, is it truly our greatest privilege and highest good? Or you might even ask yourself, can God's word really be trusted when it seems like so few affirm it, and even fewer who do affirm it are following it. And those are real questions that we wrestle with at times. Perhaps you're listening to this message now and in and, and indifference and disillusionment and disillusionment to your present circumstances are is starting to numb your spiritual vitality, your soul itself. I'm here to remind you this morning of what the Word of God says. And I'm here to remind you that the uncertainty and the upheaval of our present reality, whatever that is, uh, that is nothing new to human history. Uh, that is not, we are not the first generation to have this problem. From Genesis 3 onward, men and women have been wrestling with the same temptations to discouragement, the same temptations to disillusionment that you and I are dealing with perhaps today. And, uh, and yet, they were able to face these uncertainties and to press on. And so each time we open up the copy, our copy of God's Word, this is important to remember, every time you open up a copy of God's Word, we need to remember that 
every word, for the most part, was penned by someone who was either imprisoned, tortured, a sojourner, or a refugee in hiding, or some combination of those four. You think about Paul, you think about James, you think about uh, Jeremiah, you think about even Moses as he wandered through the wilderness, writing the first five books of the law of the Old Testament, the law. I mean, as, as God used these people to, uh, in incredible difficulty, to pen the scriptures, they have come to us through great suffering and through great hardship. The world has always been unpredictable. It has always been unstable. The world has always been unfulfilling in an ultimate sense. And God's people have always had to face that reality head on. Nothing new under the sun. Such was the case for the Ephesian church when Paul writes to them in this letter that you and I know as 1 Timothy. If you look back in chapter 1, he points out right out of the gate that there were false teachers in their midst, and there were sinful patterns that emerged from those false teachers and their false teaching that had sprouted up. Sinful patterns had sprouted up like weeds in the midst of the congregation. And that those weeds, if you those spiritual weeds, threatened to overwhelm and choke out the good, the good fruit that was growing in this church, which Paul and Timothy had labored so desperately in. And then temptations in the midst of all of that to lose heart abounded. As you read the letter, uh, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus as he moved on in his missionary efforts, but at in, after leaving, he is prompted by the Holy Spirit uh, to write to Timothy, encouraging them to carry on in the midst of it all. Their situation was serious. Their situation was in need of immediate instruction. And just like our situation at times is serious, and we are in need of God's immediate instruction. And so the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he's compelled to speak to him in this letter to instruct him and the church to hold the line. If you look at the end of chapter 1, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith among whom are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. The picture here is Paul saying, I am writing to you to press on. You, he, he says, you've got to keep fighting the good fight of faith. Don't let distraction, don't let discouragement, don't let disillusionment give way to the destruction of your faith. Don't let it undermine your trust in the Lord. And so the seriousness of their situation is immediate, even in the very beginning where he, he urges them not to pay attention to myths and, and false teachers and instead to hold fast to the, to the truth the, the, of the mystery, the, a pure heart, he said, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the seriousness of their situation is evident right from the very beginning, uh, and the the thesis statement of the whole letter is stated in our text this morning in chapter 3, at the, the final verses of chapter 3. 
Paul explains, he just pulls back the curtain and says, this is why I'm writing to you. Verse 14 of chapter 3, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So Paul has placed Timothy there. He's left him in Ephesus in hopes of returning in the not-too-distant future. At least that was his anticipation. That was his plan. But um, the ca- the, he gives this kind of caveat at the end of uh, verse, uh, um, excuse me, beginning of verse 15. He says, listen, the Lord might have different plans than what I have. So in case I don't get back as soon as I anticipate, here's what you need to know. I'm writing you these things. What are the these things that he's referring to in verse 14? Well, uh, the immediate context is what he's just said in chapter 2, in the beginning part of chapter 3. Instructions to men in the church, to women in the church, overseers and deacons. Uh, but I believe you can make an argument that uh, he's not just referring to what is preceding, but all that he is writing in chapters later on in chapter 4, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So, so these uh, verses that we're looking at this morning give a summary, a purpose statement for the whole letter. It's why he's writing this to them. And it rises out of a deep concern about their difficulties and that they would know how to manage those difficulties so that they would not be steered off the true path, the straight and narrow path. The gravity of Paul's instruction here and its capacity for it for that instruction to destroy our disillusionment and to rebuild and to fortify our hope, uh, that the weight of that, the mass of that, is it sneaks up on you in this text. As I was looking at it again this week, as Paul reiterates what he says here in these final verses, their significance, it hides almost in plain sight. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I typically will forget that my glasses are you know, either on my sunglasses or on my head or, my, po- or my keys are in my pocket or my wallet's in my pocket. And I will sometimes go maddeningly crazy trying to find them looking through everywhere in the house. But I never stop to actually just like, look, is it on my head? Is it in my pocket already? And in some ways, that's what this text is. I mean, we see what it says, and it's like, okay, great. But the reality of it is laying there on the surface. It's in plain sight. And we need to simply pick it up and to look at it and, uh, and stop worrying and being so frantic. And so in these verses, and this is what I want us to do this morning in the few moments that we have, is we see Paul rehearsing both the architecture and the affirmation of the church And his rehearsal of that, his pointing us to that, is meant to destroy and undermine any temptations in our heart to to disillusionment or discouragement and to rebuild and fortify our hope. And so I want to help you see why that is this morning in this Christmas message because uh, the the, the heart of our confession is in verse 16, and that is the reality of of what Christmas is all about. It is the word made flesh that God himself was revealed in the flesh. Before we even get to that, first we need to see in verses 14 and 15 the architecture, Paul rehearses for us, the architecture of the church. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 
15, he says, I am writing to you so that one will know how to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, that description of the church here is not comparing the church to a building, obviously. That's not what he's talking about. Or some kind of observable structure. What he's emphasizing here is that the church is a family. The church is, a, is not a house. It's a household. So when you hear household in Scripture, you need to not think about necessarily a place. You need to think about people. And that's the picture here. Paul is concerned that everyone know that they are to conduct themselves, how they're to conduct themselves within the realm of God's family, which is the church. And that's why he he writes to him and to us even uh, by extension. The comparison that he makes of the church to a family is uh, is not new either. He's already did it. He's already said that in the preceding verses in chapters uh, three, verses four and five. He talks about how an elder must be one who manages his own household well. Um, and again, that picture is he's saying if he he has to manage the people in his household and everything that goes with it. Otherwise, he can't possibly manage God's household with the people and everything in it. Uh, with any degree of faithfulness. So so the metaphor here of the church as a household is reiterating the fact that the church is a family. Titus 1 verse 7 says an overseer is to be compared to a steward. An elder is compared to a steward. Again, someone who manages a household. Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul encourages us to persevere in serving And he exhorts the reader, he says, to do good to those of the household of faith. He's talking about the people. He's talking about individuals. The household of faith are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Ephesians 1 verse 10 speaks of God's plan of salvation in the present age and is called the administration of Christ. And that literally means the management of the administration. That term has the idea of a management of a household. So the church is the household of God because the triune God has taken up residence within within the hearts of each and every true believer. Paul asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, The point is the church is, is not a building. It's not a loose association of people who have a similar upbringing. It's not a common ethnicity. It's not a social outlet for those times in your life when you feel alone. No, the church is a spiritual family, and each and every one of us who is in Christ has been, that has been born again, has been born again into God's family by the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are part of the life of God, the triune God. We have been made partakers of that that life through faith. Conduct in the church, which consumes the bulk of what's in this letter, is why Paul writes. He says it's not mere social etiquette. It's vital information for how relationships in God's household are to operate and to conduct, how we're to conduct themselves for his glory. Um, the Lord Jesus himself connected our conduct and our membership in his family uh, back in Matthew chapter 12. Um, if you look back at Matthew 12 for just a moment, Jesus is in this crowd, and this, this scene kind of emerges. And while he was speaking, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. 
meaning his actual mother and his stepbrothers, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered to the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother." The Lord Jesus here says being a member of God's family has nothing to do with your biological mother or father or who your biological brothers or sisters are. It has to do with whether or not you are obedient from the heart to the will of God, implying, of course, rebirth through repentance and faith. So um, I don't know about your families, but my family growing up, we had rules. We had very straightforward, strict rules Growing up, and there were expectations about how we did everything. There were expectations about how we spoke to adults. There were expectations and rules about how we came and went, um, what we couldn't, couldn't, could or couldn't watch on TV. Um, you know, when we went to bed, when we had to get up, lots of other things, uh, especially when we were little. But how many of you ever complained or pushed back against those those rules or those restrictions or those guidelines? Um, and if you were like me, you may have pushed back on them enough that one or both of your parents would have responded with this kind of classic, as long as you live under my roof speech. We've, had, we've either done that. I know I've, I've probably been tempted to say that to our kids, and, um, and we've probably been on the receiving end of that speech. The point is, they're trying, the point that your parents, our parents, that we as parents are trying to make is, and that Paul's emphasizing when he speaks here about the church as the household of God, is that being part of a family comes with the expectation of how we are to uh, conduct ourselves. What's true of our earthly family, then, is also true for God's family, the church. So being a part of God's family necessitates conformity to God's standard of conduct which he has given us in the scriptures. And when we keep within the boundaries of that conduct and we will operate within the framework which we're given, we are blessed. There's joy and there is peace and there is um, a, a right relationship between the various members. And so um, just as a total aside, I mean, this is almost like a complete aside, but it's a great application that needs to be pointed out here, and it's this. Do you view the church in that way? Do you view the local church as the family of God? And if you do, are you committed to serving and caring for the members of God's family as you would members of your own biological family? Are you burdened for their spiritual and physical well-being? Are you uh, concerned for them, for their soul, just as you are for your biological family? Do you extend the members of God's family in his church the same courtesies and grace and patience that you extend to your biological family? Those are questions we need to remind ourselves and ask ourselves to make sure we have that attitude because that is the expectation that the scripture has for us when it speaks about fellowship within God's family, the church. But Paul goes on here, and this is where we really want to drill down, to describe the church not only as the household, but he calls it the church or the assembly of the living God. The assembly of the living God. The awesomeness of that statement, 
is one that we cannot miss as we look at this passage. The, we are a part of the church of the living God. And this term, of course, living God, is used all throughout the Old Testament. It highlights that God is the one true God, and all other quote-unquote gods are nothing. Paul, when preaching at Lystra in Acts 14, after he healed a lame man, said to the crowds who were trying to worship him in Barnabas for this miracle that he had done, says, men, why are you doing these things? We are men just of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul understood that the God of the Bible is alone, eternally existent, and he alone is the source of all life and all spiritual and physical uh, realities. To be a part of the living God's household is an awesome privilege. That's the point. It is a privilege and a blessing to be a part of the living God's household. And Paul further describes the architecture of the church here. He says the church is not only the household of God, but it is the pillar and the support of the truth. And these are vivid word pictures. The church is described as a pillar. What, what is the function of a pillar? It holds up something above it, a roof or, or, or something of consequence, right? Uh, it holds things up. The Ephesians understood what a pillar was because in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis at this time. The Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive, massive structure almost 400 feet long, 180 feet wide. It was made entirely of marble, and its roof was held up by 127 pillars, and each pillar was 60 feet tall. So, you know, for us today, we see these massive skyscrapers and things, and we're not impressed anymore, but that was a massive feat of engineering, and it would have dominated the landscape. And so when Paul says the church is the pillar of the truth... That is the image many of them would have considered and thought about. The church is also described as a support here in verse 15. The word for support is just another word for the foundation. So foundations, of course, are also vitally important. If you just ask the uh, Italians in Italy, the famed lean, leaning tower of Pisa He's got a three, a measly little three-meter foundation. So it's not a surprise that once they even started building the second level, it started to shift. The foundation began to tilt from the very get-go. In other words, for a building to be uh, to remain and to remain upright, a properly seated foundation is is key for its integrity and its and its longevity. The church then is described here in this section as the pillar which holds up and the foundation that undergirds the truth. The full body of truth about God and about his son, Jesus Christ, and about salvation and everything else we need to know about God. That deposit of truth is held up and supported in an unbelieving world by each and every member of God's household in his church. 
So this is where I say this is a a destroyer of disillusionment and a rebuilder of our hope. In the midst of life's constantly shifting circumstances and all the jarring, dislocating realities that we experience day in and day out, which, which honestly can tempt us to throw our hands up and give up at times, you need to ask yourself this question or these questions. If, the, if Christ's church isn't concerned about eternal truth, then who else will be? If Christ's church isn't earnestly contending for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, who else is going to do that? If Christ's church isn't faithfully handing down the deposit of truth to the next generation of saints, who will? In other words, the church on earth is not perfect. And sometimes the church falls woefully short of God's ideal. But if you're tempted to disillusionment and walking away, and a lot has been said recently about deconstructing people's faith, deconstructing, which is just a fancy word for apostasy. But if you're tempted to walk away, like so many in the crowds did in Jesus' day as he preached in John 6, and and Jesus turned to Peter, and remember what what Jesus said to Peter. He says, you don't want to go away too, do you? To which Peter responded, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. Paul reminds us that whatever green there appears to be on the other side of the fence, whatever that might look like, it is not the green of God's truth. Because only God's Christ's church is a household adequate in order to administer God's redeeming purposes in the world. Only God's church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Only Christ's church is a foundation sure enough to bear the load of an eternal weight of glory. You say, well, Jeff, I see people who profess faith in Jesus who who contradict the truth. In fact, they don't just contradict the truth. uh, They're actually sometimes fighting against the truth. When I look and I listen to what they say and how they live. And to that I would say... I would say, direct you to Romans 3, verse 4, where Paul says, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I don't believe God's word is true because I, of how certain people live it out. I believe it is truth because it is God's revelation of himself, and he is, God is, the God of truth, who cannot lie. And so Paul destroys our disillusionment here and rebuilds our hope by reminding us that we are part of the living God's household, Christ's church, and that church alone is the pillar and the support of the truth. Only in the church will truth be found. Only in the church will truth be defended. Only in the church will truth be handed off to the next generation. So we stand on the absolute solid bedrock of God's truth. And all their ground is sinking sand. So 
I believe a, an implication of verses 14 and especially verse 15 is this reality that the church alone is the pillar and the support of the truth. And anything outside of that is simply wishful thinking. You will not find truth outside, outside of the true church. But the architecture of the church isn't the only thing that we want to look at in this section. Because if you look at verse uh, 16, we see the affirmation of the church. So not only do we see the architecture of the church in verses 14 and 15, but in verse 16, we see the affirmation of the gospel truth which makes up the church and who, of course, is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 16, Paul says, by common confession, you could also translate that uh, for sure or surely great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The common confession of the church is this mystery, this spiritual truth that was um, previously unknown but has now been revealed. And it is this reality that salvation is not by human achievement but through divine accomplishment in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is rehearsing for us the eternity-altering, life-transforming, spirit-empowering message of the gospel here in this, in this section. And Paul summarizes it in, in verse 16 in a very uh, straightforward um, in a very straightforward kind of parallelism that you see here. Many scholars believe that this statement in verse 16 is, was an apostolic statement of some kind or some kind of early church hymn because it's, there is such a clear parallelism in the original language. Um, I, it's hard to know for sure if it was any of those things. There's arguments that can be made for all of them. Um, but what we do know, it was something that was very straightforward, and it certainly encapsulates some profound truths. It does so in three couplets. So you got two lines, two lines, two lines, and they go together. Uh, in the first two lines, we see the revelation of Christ. We see the revelation of Jesus Christ, which Paul describes here is he who was revealed in the flesh. So John, I mean, this is the reality of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we sing all these hymns that speak of the incarnation. Is the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. John 1 verse 14 says, Glory is as of the one, of only, one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's distinct from God, and yet he is God. This is a, a profound reality that has been revealed to us. Jesus is God of very God, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He walked among us. This is the glorious reality that makes Christmas as I said in my email, the most theological time of the year. Because 
There's so many wonderful theological realities that come to the surface. You think there's no hope. You think God doesn't care. You might be tempted to think that um, your circumstances are never going to change. Listen, God became flesh and dwelt among us. There is hope. God does care, and the Lord is near to those who call upon him. So we need to remember and recall he who was revealed in the flesh. But he goes on to say here in the revelation of Christ, he was vindicated in the spirit. Jesus not only revealed himself in time and space in the person of the word to humanity as a son of God, but he was also vindicated or justified in the spirit. He lived a sinless life. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly father in every way. He lived a sinless life, endured the cross to pay the penalty, not for his own sin, but our sin and the sins of all who would call upon him and trust in his name. And, and so 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, he, who made, uh, he, he, the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, this is the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. So Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the grave as the vindication, as the proof that he had made atonement for sin, that he himself was blameless in every way. So we see the revelation of Christ in the first two lines. In lines three and four, we see the witnesses of Christ. He was seen by angels. Throughout the uh, the Lord's earthly ministry, angels actually played an important role. If you notice, if you think about it, they were there at his birth, heralding his birth. They ministered to him in his temptation. They came alongside him and ministered to him in the garden of Gethsemane. It was the angels that rolled away the stone at the door of his tomb. And it were, there were angels who appeared to the various witnesses, the women, affirming that Jesus had risen from the grave. So, so he was witnessed in every way for having completed the work that he accomplished. He was seen by angels and he was proclaimed, he, Jesus has been proclaimed among the nations. The disciples of Christ bore witness to him and they took that message to the world. And we are the beneficiaries of that testimony, that bearing witness. The truth of salvation by repentance and faith in Jesus has literally spread across the globe because he was proclaimed, he has been proclaimed among the nations. So not only do we see uh, the uh, revelation of Christ and the witnesses of Christ, but in lines 5 and 6, we see the reception of Christ. He was believed on in the world, Jesus was. The, the faithful proclamation of the message of the gospel resulted in many individuals resting and placing their trust in Jesus. Not because of their own efforts were they saved, but because of what Christ had done. And it says he was taken up in glory. So after 
living a sinless life, dying a substitutionary death in our place, and rising from the grave, Christ ascends to the heavenly Father, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reception of Christ was one of belief in the world and exaltation to heaven. So in these, in these six very short stanzas, Paul summarizes the, the gospel confession that binds the church together into the household of God. God became man. He died for our sin. He triumphed over death. He was honored and attended to by angels. He was, and has been exalted to the Father in heaven. I mean, this is, this is our common confession. His message of salvation has been proclaimed all over the world, and many have believed and have been saved. And even as we look ahead to Christmas itself, the question the text asks of us, it it begs us to consider again is this, have you turned and believed this message Have you trusted in this message? Have you come to the end of yourself in your efforts, in your righteousness, in your lordship, your way of living in the world, and believed upon and submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that is what this common confession demands. This is the affirmation of the church. It is beyond a doubt. That's why he calls it a common confession here. All who are a part of Christ's family have made this common confession, have affirmed it as true, and therefore are part of God's household. If you have not embraced the gospel, today must be the day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The heavenly design of the church's architecture as the pillar and support of the truth, that is grounded upon, and that's what we need to see in verse 16, that is grounded upon the church's heavenly affirmation. It, it is the common confession that Jesus is Lord. And, uh, and that common confession destroys our disillusionment and rebuilds our hope. Paul loved the church. He loved the church. And he loved the church because he loved the Lord of the church. And therefore, he would spend his entire life engaged in this task of equipping the saints for the building up of Christ's body. There's no greater joy, no greater privilege than that. Timothy Dwight, who was the president of Yale at the turn of the 19th century, so 1800s, he's widely regarded as one of the great educators in American history. It was under his leadership that a great reform happened at Yale, many, many years ago. Um, The curriculum and the administration were revamped and enrollment tripled. But he was, first and foremost, believe it or not, a preacher as the president of Yale. And many students gave their lives to Christ under his gospel preaching. He wrote a really well-known hymn, um, and I think we've sung it from time to time, is I love 
thy church, O Lord. I love the church, he says, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, and her hymns of love and praise. And this is just, it captures Paul's joyful, hopeful devotion to Christ and to Christ's church. Paul, Timothy, the church in Ephesus that he's writing to, they had more than enough going on in their lives to make life overwhelming and discouraging. They had more than enough going on to be disillusioned. But as tempting as that was, they had a greater transcendent reality to set their minds on, to rebuild and to strengthen their hope. And that is what we see in this text. My mind keeps going back to when, when I'm discouraged or when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm looking at things through a very kind of temporal lens. I, I constantly take my mind back to Colossians 3. And Paul says, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And this is kind of the completion. That's the implication of what we just read. He's been exalted to the Father. Therefore, we've been raised up with him. We share in that. Therefore, keep seeking. And then he says this, when our minds are all over the place, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And here's the reason. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life, appears, verse 4 says. Uh, and not appearing as a little baby, but as the triumphant Lord of heaven and earth. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so this Christmas, we shepherd our hearts back to that affirmation. We take our minds back to that mystery of godliness and the architecture of the church that we have the privilege of being a part of with all of its attendant privileges and blessings. And we soldier on. And I would just encourage you, if your mind and heart are, are wandering, if you're, if, you're, if you're wondering, I don't know, I don't see where this goes, you need to take your mind back to these realities because God in his word has given us his truth to anchor our minds and our hearts. We need to set our minds afresh on the things above, not on things below. And I pray that that would strengthen your heart through this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that these great spiritual realities have been brought to completion. We, we have the benefit of looking in, hi, in hindsight and seeing all these things um, are done. They didn't even have, some of the Old Testament saints didn't even know exactly how all this was going to work out, and yet you still 
enable them to see with the eyes of faith and to trust you. And we pray, Lord, that our, our faith would remain steadfast, that we would remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because, indeed, by common confession, you, you have been manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. You have been proclaimed among the nations. Or you have been taken back into glory. All those things are true. And if they are true, then you will return. And you will finish what you started. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to live for you. May our church fulfill its calling as the pillar and the support of your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.